Broadcasting from the studios of Business Radio X, it's time for Litigator's Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, guiding clients through challenging workplace legal issues. Now, here are your hosts. All right. Thank you for tuning in to our debut episode of Litigator's Lounge, your go-to source for insightful discussions on workplace dynamics and legal issues. Whether you're a legal, HR, or insurance professional, or just curious about the law, pull up a seat in the Litigator's Lounge, where we'll explore compelling cases and current events and engage in insightful conversations and banter over a lychee martini or two, or three. I'm Jackie Voronov, and I'm here with the wonderful Shiley Bannon. How are you doing today, Shiley? I'm doing great, Jackie. Thanks for asking. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. All right. We're both here, and the Litigator's Lounge is now open. All right. What are we going to talk about today, Jackie? We're going to talk about the focus on the return to office mandates that have been making waves in the news. In addition to some of the practical aspects of return to office mandates employers have to face, there have been some unique legal issues raised by these mandates to get back in the brick and mortar office. If you do a quick Google search for return to office mandates, which I did before we started recording this episode, you'll see hundreds of news articles populate demonstrating that the debate over whether companies instituting these mandates and ending the widespread permissive remote work policies are making good decisions or bad ones is still a really big topic. A report published by Resume Builder in August of 2023 indicated that 90% of companies polled plan to implement return-to-office policies by the end of 2024. And nearly 30% of those companies state that they will threaten to fire employees who do not comply with in-office requirements. Only 2% of the business leaders who were asked reported that their companies never plan to require employees to work in person. In fact, in August of 2023, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy told employees in a pre-recorded Q&A video that it was past the time to disagree and commit with a policy that requires Amazon employees to be in the office three days a week, after the Amazon employees engaged in a May protest with hundreds of them demonstrating during lunchtime against that policy. I think even ironically that Zoom itself has mandated that its employees return back to the office, at least at a minimum on a part-time basis. We have all experienced Zoom fatigue, and I bet that the people there experience it more than any of us. (laughs) At a minimum, hybrid return-to-office mandates are pervasive across all industries, with some industries pushing more intensely for full-time in-office mandates. The remote and even the hybrid models have affected the commercial real estate industries, janitorial companies, and the hospitality, restaurant, and service industries that have provided services to office employees. There's a lot to be said for both the pros and cons of remote work versus in-office work, and we're all familiar with the arguments on either side. What's the way out? Was it putting laundry in during your lunch break versus collaborating with your employees? Yeah, I have a lot to say more against remote work than for remote work. And my job involves picking a side, sticking to it, and telling you exactly why I'm right. And as a labor and employment attorney, my job is to advise employers on all things legal in the workplace, right? My my job involves knowing the employment laws, even when they change, it seems, every other month, helping organizations, managers, general counsel, HR professionals, the insurance companies navigate their way 
through an employment law landscape that almost seems to change faster than you can learn the law in the first place. So one of the bigger issues that my clients have had to grapple with in recent days is reasonable accommodations for disabilities in the post-COVID world. That seems to be a big thing for a lot of companies. And if you had asked me prior to the pandemic whether I foresaw a large-scale remote work environment, I would have told you absolutely not. But the world was just a much different place back then. Pre-2020, employers were really comfortable taking a position that an employee who was asking for remote work as an accommodation was being unreasonable, right? Now we're like, what, we're about four years into this. And in some states, we've got employees looking to stay fully remote. They're using disability discrimination laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, otherwise known as the ADA, as a vehicle to get what they want. They want to stay remote and they're looking for a way to achieve that end. And it's got this class of workers who've come forward in a very loud, very aggressive way. And they're not just asking to work remotely anymore, right? Like the Amazon employees who you mentioned just starting a protest. They're demanding it. And their voices are, are coming across pretty loud. So even before the pandemic, I think that people forget that employees could and did request work assignments that involved remote work as reasonable accommodations. So this isn't really a, a totally brand new concept. The EEOC published guidance on telework dates back to 2003. So this idea that remote work is new is not actually accurate. It's just that the pandemic has cast a spotlight on remote work and made this issue very in your face. Prior to 2020, telework made up about 5% of work. And now it's about 50% of the paid work hours um, that companies are seeing on their books. And Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I think employees have grown very accustomed to working from home. They don't want to return to the office. And within that group of workers, you have a subset of employees who've now become more emboldened to ask for an accommodation that they previously might not have asked for. So I think that the pressing question that we've got that we're talking about today is whether this genie can be put back in the bottle after the pandemic. And Jackie, I think that not only looking at this from the perspective of accommodations and this new class of workers who are trying to use the ADA and similar statutes to get what they want from remote work is an important thing to think about, but the return to office mandates really affect uh, large classes of workers from a protect who are protected classes of workers in a lot of different ways. So putting aside even the ADA, which I know we're going to focus on for a lot of this episode, uh, I am friends with a lot of women who are also mothers and who have told me that when they have asked to work remotely, uh, that their employers have actually suggested that they sign pledges, that they're not going to be the primary caregivers for children or for elderly parents or for other people while they're working if they are working at home. And, and these kinds of Pledges are just astounding to me that the employers are are going that far and that they're putting these kinds of directives in place or asking their employers to do that because employees to do that, because that is going to disparately affect women in the workplace. What do you think? Um, it's essentially asking a woman, if, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, these companies are basically asking their workers to certify or pledge that they either have got their kids handled either otherwise have daycare or they're just not going to have kids. If this is a New York company, I would tell you, congratulations on breaking the law. That's illegal. 
So familial status in New York is a protected class. I'm not the biggest fan of the plaintiff's bar. I'll be the first ones to say it. I'm a defense attorney through and through. But if I ever saw that this was actually a questionnaire out there, I'd probably take on my first plaintiff side case. If I ever saw an employer give a questionnaire or a pledge to somebody saying you have to take care of your kids or your kids have to otherwise have child care. That's ridiculous. The fact that it's absolutely known that this would impact women in a disparate way, more so than men. I, even before COVID, women were dealing with childcare issues for years, since the dawn of work, right? We've got kids, we've juggled both. And it's astounding to me that any company would think that a woman can't do their job and take care of their kids at the same time. We're actually more efficient, more successful. And But I could go on about that for hours. I think we only have 30 minutes in this podcast. And I think that we decided that what we're really going to focus on here is this ADA accommodation request and the state equivalents, which vary from state to state. You're in New Jersey. I know you practice in New York, Massachusetts. You're almost admitted in, in Connecticut. Am I right Almost. Yeah. And as they <laughs> finish processing, but I'll be in Connecticut too. I've taken cases in Georgia, Florida, 49 right. out of the 50 states. I've seen it all. I've talked about it all. So can you give our listeners a brief overview of the ADA, which is a federal law that would apply to all of the 50 states and the territories, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, sure. So let me put my lawyer hat back on for a second. So the ADA requires employers to provide their disabled employees with reasonable accommodations unless that requested accommodation presents what's called an undue hardship. So when an employee requests an accommodation, that employer is required to engage in an interactive process. They have to learn about the employee's disability and restrictions and evaluate what accommodation would allow that employee to perform the essential functions of their role, right? Amongst other things, accommodations can include part-time work. They can include altered work assignments. They can include specific working hours, changing policies or, or materials or changing test times, training. The thing is, though, that employers are not required to provide specific accommodations requested by the employee, right? So we don't have, just because an employee asks for a certain accommodation, in this case, it might be fully remote work or hybrid work, doesn't mean the employer has to specifically give them that accommodation. But because the pandemic forced so many employers to adapt to work from home arrangements, even on a temporary basis, employees now have a better argument to argue that working from home is is feasible and therefore reasonable. They they jump from one to the other almost without doing any kind of analysis on any of the other points. This notwithstanding, I, I do want to highlight that employees don't have a standalone right to work from home. And there's this misconception, I think, that's really taken hold of the post-pandemic labor force. It's that employees think that if they ask for something, that at least in theory, if it's doable, they have an entitlement to it. And the law has always been that under most circumstances, it's the employers who maintain the authority to require in-person work. It's up to the employer what they want to do that suits the needs of their particular business, provided, however, that it allows the employee to perform the essential functions of the job. One of the things I think is that the pandemic drew out a very ambitious segment of the plaintiff's bar that looked at COVID as an opportunity to change the way that courts interpret and apply the ADA and, and state disability discrimination laws and swing the pendulum in the opposite direction when it came to accommodation requests. It's also my personal opinion, 
that the movement didn't really see as much success as they thought it might, which I would say cheers to that. Cheers. Exactly. <laughs> Always looking for an excuse. <laughs> cheers to that. But I think it's really interesting to note that the ability to work remote is now extremely important to a very large percentage of the labor force, primarily Gen Z and millennial employees who have in polls said that the ability to be fully remote or at least hybrid is more important than salary. And I can tell you up here in the Northeast that a lot of prospective employees applying for jobs are more inclined to turn down a job opportunity if it entails a five-day in-office work requirement just as in terms of the job specifics and the job perks. That's to say nothing of what the ADA does or any accommodations. And again, that's up here in like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and the Northeast. Are you seeing anything different in Florida in terms of employees either being required to return or being receptive to it? Jackie, I think that if I personally lived in the Northeast and I can actually see snow out of your window right now, I would also be inclined to ask to be able to stay at home rather than to have to go out in that weather. It is almost 70 degrees here today in Florida. But in why don't you? <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm having a pina colada in addition to the lychee martini. But <laughs> but Florida has had a, a little bit of a different culture, I think, than other places when it comes to remote work and sort of COVID limitations, even from the get-go. The political climate in Florida and Florida's approach to COVID work from home and shelter-in-place restrictions certainly played a big role in the culture here. And the return to work, return to office movement, I think, started earlier here in Florida than it did in many places in the United States. But putting politics aside, uh, there is a very large contingent of the uh, workforce here in Florida that wants to work from home, that prefers to work from home, that found benefits to working from home. And I think that it also varies in different areas of the state. I think especially in the last year, 18 months, there was a huge shift, a labor shift, right, where everybody was lateraling to different firms, different positions, different companies. And so remote work was a really big attractor. But now that has slowed a little bit and people are are a little bit more cautious about the economy and making job jumps. I think that employers are starting to get the upper hand in being able to pull people back in and not given as much to just those being employee preferences. And so I'm actually going to be very interested to see, now that we're seeing fewer shifts in employment, whether this ADA theory of accommodation and uh, will be used more here to try to get what employees want. Oh, I absolutely think so. Let me ask you this. When the pandemic was in at the height of it all, were you remote or were you coming into work? So we were remote for about four months, and then we returned fully in office. But what we're seeing is that employers have become a lot more flexible in terms of those times that you really need to work from home. For people who have children, if you have a child who whose school is closed, employers are a lot more accepting of you going home or in, in the past, when I was a, a young associate, for example, if I was sick, I would still go into the office. And I think that people are a lot more cognizant about if you're coughing, please don't come into the office. Stay at home. It doesn't necessarily mean I don't need to work, but I don't want to hear my neighbor sneezing in the room next to me. For you and your work ethic, we maintain a sanitary <laughs> environment here. 
please. What do you think, Jackie? Do you think that courts around the country have been leaning more in flavor of the employees uh, on these failure to accommodate claims where employees are asking for remote work as a reasonable accommodation? No. The short answer is no. The The long answer is that I get the sense that the the federal judiciary is somewhat less likely nowadays to side with employers that deny requests for telework as a disability accommodation after COVID-19, because I think the pandemic sparked a remote work revolution. I think that judges are more receptive to at least hearing an argument. They're hearing that it's been doable. So in terms of whether or not a remote work accommodation is reasonable, there's a, a sort of a more detailed analysis that the judges are entertaining, at least. Do I think that the courts are favoring employees and serving them up the wins that maybe that they were hoping for? No, I think that we shouldn't get it twisted and louder for the plaintiff's lawyers in the back. Employers are still winning these cases, at least the ones with good lawyers like me and you who represent them. And I think that cases that make it to all the way to judicial decisions are the ones that are usually the weakest claims, right? I think that in cases, if it's stronger, wherever the case has more merit, the employer and the employee would probably, in my experience, reach an accommodation resolution, right? These are cases where it's not worth it for the employer to litigate, whether it's for reputational reasons or whether there's a huge cost of defense associated with this. There's publicity involved or it wouldn't be too difficult to give a hybrid work schedule. Those cases are the ones that are being resolved. You're not seeing those opinions. Can you, can you talk a little bit about some of the actual cases that have come out that have been dealing with this? Because I've seen some headlines about the different circuit courts of appeal that weigh in the remote work aspect of the pandemic and whether that's evidence of whether a reasonable accommodation works. What, what have you actually seen in these decisions? So I'm a massive, this is going to be very hard for you to believe, Shiley, but I'm a huge nerd and I read like Westlaw, like it's fun. For me, not surprised. I'm actually not surprised, but that's like, okay. I'm the queen of a Boolean search, and I will go deep into Westlaw and start like pulling up cases going back as as far as the ADA was passed. But I will tell you this: I've done a few searches for, let's say, the ADA, remote work, and reasonable accommodation, and what I've seen is that the slam dunk that employees thought that they were getting never came, right? Employers still win far more cases than they lose. The most interesting one I've seen, I think the the most pressing or the most prevalent, at least disability argument that we've heard over the last two years are cases where employees say they have depression or anxiety about returning to work, whether it's depression that preexisted the, the, the pandemic and it was exacerbated by the circumstances for whatever the reason might be they have anxiety, they have social anxiety disorder, and they're arguing that's a disability and that they need to be accommodated through remote work. There was recently a case out of Wyoming. It's currently on appeal, and I'm watching it pretty closely. It involved an HR director, and that HR director was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. She sued her former employer, alleging that the company failed to accommodate her when she asked to work remotely. And what I thought was a really notable part of the decision was that the district court found that physical attendance and interacting with coworkers are essential job functions. And people tend to forget that. That's a big thing, right? So the, the Wyoming court highlighted something, which is before even getting to questions of undue hardship, can we 
address whether or not this is even doable. It's focus focus first on what are, are the essential job functions. Employees tend to have a tendency to think, I can do this anywhere. I don't need to give any weight to being in the office. It's not really that important, right? But remote work was never intended to become the norm. It's more of a temporary solve to a, a big problem that the country was dealing with in 2020. And although that the failure to accommodate claims have skyrocketed, I don't see the federal judges kowtowing to them, really. They might allow them to go forward, but I haven't seen that big win. Not in Wyoming, not in New York, not in New Jersey. I haven't seen any runaway jury verdicts saying that anybody was denied a reasonable accommodation on remote work grounds either. What I've seen, Jackie, in the Fifth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit, I think they've both issued opinions that maybe don't get to the ultimate issue, but they have started to give this guidance saying that evidence that can be considered about whether it's a reasonable accommodation is the success rate that particular employee had when they were remote during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, were they able to do their job duties successfully in that remote environment? And I think that the EEOC has actually given some guidance that is evidence that can be considered, but not necessarily dispositive. Have oh, you sure. seen that? Have you seen that in any of your local cases in New York and New Jersey? All of them. All of them were they, as, like I said before, if it's feasible, it must be a reasonable accommodation. And while it's certainly important to analyze it, it's a very different issue, whether or not it's doable, whether it works. And I'm loath to say that something was successful. That's the thing. I don't think that we've been out of this long enough to be able to look back and look at any employee's numbers. I, I don't know what the position might be, right? But let's just take any example. You're in, in marketing or advertising and an employee will argue, I've been super successful. I've hit my goals. I've read, I've demonstrated my numbers. I didn't slack. So obviously this must be the best way to do things. I don't know that looking at this from only like a two or three year perspective is indicative or demonstrates that we've achieved any level of success or that employee is actually correct, right? Only time will tell. But I absolutely do think that the courts are taking all of these things into step. They're analyzing them. It doesn't necessarily mean that the employer loses at the end of the day because the employer is entitled to set forth what they believe to be the essential job functions. And showing up at work, being in person can be and often is an essential job function. So even though that employee might be saying that they're hitting their numbers or they're excelling, it's a fact question, and we're getting ourselves jumbled up. We're creating a, a difficult scenario for employers. If you're making that argument, you're creating fact questions on summary judgment motions, and that's where things are going in favor of employees in that regard, I think. In but 2019, Bloomberg Law conducted an analysis of ADA remote work cases and found that employers won 70% of rulings over the prior two years regarding whether they could reject workers' bid for telework as an accommodation for disability. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals opined during that time that most jobs require the kind of teamwork, personal interaction, and supervision that simply cannot be had in a home office situation. It sounds like some of those CEOs who are pushing uh, uh, their return to office mandates listen to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, doesn't it? Sounds like they might have dived into Westlaw just like I did. <laughs> I'm not the only one. So do you have any guidance for our listeners who are navigating the ADA terrain, especially if they're on the employer side? 
Yeah, I've got a lot of opinions, both from a kind of a practical standpoint, as well as my opinion from the defense attorney standpoint. I'll tell you this. I, I'll g- make a confession and don't shoot me, but I'm in the anti-remote work camp. This is where I duck and you'll probably throw something at me. Me too. I just, <laughs> me too. I just, I think that it results in reduced collaboration and team dynamics. I think that it presents communication challenges. I think that it leads to potential for isolation. I think that there's secure in the world of cyber and hacking problems and HIPAA violations. I think that there's countless security and confidentiality problems because people are leaving their computers on at home and then somebody, your neighbor comes over and she wants a lychee martini and she sees your confidential documents. I, I think that there's a lot of more arguments in favor of return to work. Having said that, I recognize that I'm a little stodgy and old timey and things evolve and adapt. And No, Jackie, you're young and hip. That's all I was asking for. It's just like pulling teeth. I was waiting for you to say something. No, it's fine. You're so young. (laughs) But I think you raise a really interesting point about the Bloomberg law analysis, which is there's this increase in cases from 17 to 19 as opposed to 21 to 23. Do I have guidance on what to do now that we know that the cases are skyrocketing? Yeah. To be a little bit of a a lawyer nerd again, here's what the first step, step one is figure out whether an employee is a qualified individual under the ADA, right? It's unlawful for an employer, we know, to discriminate against a qualified individual on the basis of a disability. So if an employee is not a qualified individual, the employer has no obligation to provide a reasonable accommodation, right? That's step one. Step two, we have to verify whether the employee actually has a disability covered by the ADA. Some conditions are just temporary, right? They're not covered by the ADA at all. And this might come as a surprise to you, but people just want to work remote. They don't gloss over the entire disability part of things, right? We still have to do that analysis. We have to figure out whether the employee has a qualifying disability. How do we do that? You engage in what's called the interactive process. It sounds like this catchphrase. It's a That's the legal term for it. It's legalese that basically just tells the employer, you've got to talk to your people. You've got to engage in a dialogue with your staff to discuss the disability, to discuss how that affects the employee's ability to perform the essential job functions. Communication is key. If you can't talk to your people, you will have some potential legal problems. Endeavor to have an open dialogue with your staff. It helps in identifying and implementing reasonable accommodations effectively. And the interactive process is a two-way street. It's not uncommon for employers to come up against a wall, right? Employees don't cooperate. And in that case, at least then you can say you tried, but you can't just dispense with the obligation to engage in the interactive process altogether. Then once the employer is satisfied that an employee is a qualified employee with a covered disability, we have to start considering what an appropriate accommodation might actually look like. And the first thing to do there is figuring out what are the essential job functions. If you're going to say, hey, Robert, or hey, Sally, you've got to be at the office. Your job has to be done from here and here only. You as the employer need to ask yourself, is in-person attendance really an essential function of the job? And if it is, does it say so in the job description? Do you even have a job description? So in this regard, do a full kind of look at what you 
are requiring the employee to do, right? It, do they have to really be in person? And then, it sounds like doing some work on the front end of things is really important for the employers before we even get to the point where an employee might ask for an accommodation after the employee is even in that position. I can tell you that if you don't have a job description, you're going to have a real hard time telling a plaintiff's attorney or your employee or a judge or a mediator what are the essential functions of the job. You're making them up on the fly. This way, if you have a job description, you have a written policy, you can argue that this is always what the job has entailed. This has always been a requirement of the position. It was the requirement when you took the job. It's still a requirement of the job and whether or not you can perform that essential function, right? But at a minimum, have a written policy that tells you what that function is. All right. Now talk to us about undue hardships. My understanding is, and, and that's based on me practicing this law as well, is that an employer does not need to grant even a reasonable accommodation if it would impose an undue hardship on the business operations of the employer. So what is an undue hardship? How do we figure that out? So it's very fact specific, right? What What's good for the for one employee is not, it's not a one size fits all approach. Request for accommodation that significantly impacts the financial resources could present an undue hardship. Requests that impact operations. You have to look at the type of work that was conducted by the employer. Certain positions just don't lend themselves to remote work. Bartending, waitressing, right? You're not going to work remote. It's easy in that case. Uh, I need the person bringing the lychee martini here in person, right? Exactly. Exactly. You don't have to create a whole new position for somebody if that's what they're asking for. The law has never been that you, an employer has to create a new position. It also doesn't require an undue hardship is also presented if the employee is asking you to pull somebody else out of their role and give you their job. That's an undue hardship. Another example would be eliminating any essential function of the job. That's per se unreasonable. So this goes back to what I was saying about job descriptions, right? But what about if it during, for example, the pandemic or during a certain period of time, an employer had waived one of the particular essential job functions. And so now could an employee say, you guys didn't think that this was such an essential function before. Why is it so essential that I come back into the office to do this one specific thing now? Employees are saying that. There are people... If you give somebody an avenue to make an argument, and that's the avenue that was given them, it's the the argument primarily in favor of remote work has been, I did it for two years. What's the problem? The problem is that the law does not require any employer to per- to permanently waive performance of the job functions, right? It might have worked on a temporary basis, but there's no requirement that an employer permanently waive it or alter the job functions or refrain from restoring them to what they want the workplace to look like. So yes, they can and do argue that on a temporary basis, the waiver constitutes evidence that this is a reasonable accommodation, but the employers push back, which is no, temporary situation does not mean that this is a reasonable accommodation long-term. And that goes back to the things that I was saying before, which is the long-term effect on your workforce, the morale, the, the challenges that are presented by an extended period of remote work. I think that only time is really going to see how this evolves. Right now, people are still the same way that we had the pandemic kind of flung on us and we're doing an about face to deal with it. We're now navigating our way out of it. And 
People got used to things being a certain way and there's too much change. People aren't liking change, so they don't want to go back to the old ways. And I think we have time to address just another aspect of this. Let's say that remote work is not going to cause an undue hardship. If that is one of the options for a reasonable accommodation, but there are other options, uh, does the employee or the employer get to pick which accommodation works for a situation? Oh, that's a really good question, Shiley. Nicely done. <laughs> Thanks. I have my critical thinking cap on today. <laughs> wow. You're impressive, as always. It's the employer. The employer sets the terms. When the courts aren't going to invade into the business judgment of a company, once they start to do that, they're opening up a Pandora's box, and it's always with the employer. I think that this has all been very insightful, and hopefully it's helpful to listeners who are curious to know more or confused about how to handle remote work requests, both on the employer and the employee side. I hope um, I didn't make it worse. I think that I think we gave some good guidance, but at the end of the day, there is always the classic lawyer answer of it depends. It depends. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> Everything is fact specific. You can't take what's good for employee A and say this is going to work for employee B. It's why the it's why we have jobs, right? Because we can argue for anything. Hopefully, we're always on the right side or the winning side, right? I know whatever side you're on, Shiley, is the right side and the winning side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Until next time, this is Shiley Bannon and Jackie Varnov signing out from the Litigators Lounge. Stay informed, stay empowered, have a great day, and cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on Litigators Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, helping clients navigate the complexities of workplace legal issues. For more information, go to hallboothsmith.com. Litigators Lounge is a production brought to you by Hall Booth Smith. This podcast is published for the purposes of providing general information and education on topics which include those related to the law and legal issues but the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice. Listening to this podcast or utilizing the information contained in it in any way does not constitute, nor does it create, an attorney-client relationship between you and Hall, Booth, Smith, or its lawyers. The contents of this podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a professional attorney licensed in your jurisdiction.